I invite you to open your Bible. Do you have your copy of God's Word? I hope you do. And you will open it with me and find, or turn it on, find, if you will, in your copy of God's Word, the 40th chapter today of Exodus, Exodus 40. I hope and pray that uh, you, I want to encourage you in your scripture reading. Don't be discouraged. Don't, if you've fallen behind, don't try to catch up. Just jump in and go back into reading and begin to read and your heart will be richly, richly blessed. You say, it's kind of tough sledding here in the Old Testament. Well, I'm telling you, it all connects. And so if you'll just read it and God, pray, the Lord will open uh, your heart and your mind, a deeper understanding of his word, and it will enrich in you and so uh, enrich you. And so I encourage you to uh, stay with it. All right. Now, today we're in the 40th chapter and uh, we're going to begin today uh, with verse number 34. I'm titled today's message, Beholding the Glory of the Lord. Exodus 40, beginning with verse 34. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Israelites set out whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle throughout all the stages of their journey. If the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and there was a fire inside the cloud by night, visible to the entire house of Israel throughout all the stages of their journey. Amen. Father in heaven, I pray that you would speak to us today through your word. I pray that God, you would encourage us in our walk of faith. I pray that we would be see how you are working in the children of Israel and how you've worked for us and provided for our redemption through Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to understand the fulfillment of these great shadows and symbols and types in the Old Testament fulfilled in Christ and will be fulfilled in the coming of Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray that today that our focus of attention will be upon you. I pray that we would not be distracted, distracted by our phones, distracted by thoughts of other things we need to be doing, distracted by a million things. But Father, I pray that we would be intentional, intentionally focused and listening to you. Father, I pray that today your Holy Spirit would convince us of truth, convict us about sin, comfort us about our relationship with you, console us in our griefs and fears, and Father, strengthen us to what is really true, and Father, that you would lead us to a deeper more intimate walk with Christ. 
Lord, if there's somebody here today that doesn't know Christ as Savior, I pray that today they might turn from sin and and turn to Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord. Father, have your way in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The children of Israel had been in bondage for 400 years. Many of those years, they were oppressed as slaves. The Lord, though, did not forget his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And just kind of a reminder, as we come to the end of this book of Exodus, moving into the book of Leviticus, God was faithful to his promises to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God raised up Moses many, many years later. He protected Moses and trained him in Pharaoh's house in the finest and the most elite education that Egypt had to offer. And he called Moses to lead God's people out of Egypt. And God, through great powers and a strong, mighty, outstretched arm, using plagues and miracles, he broke Pharaoh's stubborn, hard heart and brought the people out of bondage and destroyed the Egyptian army and rewarded the people by giving them great bounty as they left. Yet, these people, even though God had rescued them in a powerful way, he led them to the Red Sea. He opened up the waters. He led them through it, and, and he destroyed the Egyptians. Yet the people were rebellious, complaining, a stiff-necked people that grumbled at the Lord and at every circumstance and difficulty or hardship that they faced. And the Lord is revealing himself to them. I, as I read the children of Israel and their story, I can't help but see, the, I can't help but apply some names to some of the people that are not mentioned by name. I do think that they were early Baptists for certain. And yet God, in their stiff-neckedness and hard-heartedness, even though they'd been brought out of slavery, slavery was still inside of them. And even though they were oppressed, they were still being oppressed, even though they've left Egypt. And it's here that the Lord reveals himself to them and shows himself and gives them the, the, the law of God and he confronts their idolatry. He guides them with his presence. And the Lord's intention is to bring them to the promised land. He wants them to experience the fullness of the inheritance that God has for them. But they must learn obedience through trusting in the Lord. And he wants them to live in obedience in the fullness of blessing. And this is exactly what God wants to do for us. He not only has saved us through Christ, but he wants us to know the fullness of the inheritance that is ours, and we learn it through obedience to Jesus Christ. God wants an intimate relationship with them. So he gives them his presence, and he outlines how that they are to worship him. And he gives them a shadow, a type, a precursor to God sending his son for us in the construction of the tabernacle and the worship that takes place there. 
And they are to worship him as God's holy people, and so are we. The Lord gives them instructions on how to worship him, how to live in relationship with one another. He gives them a sacrificial system to teach them his holiness, their sinfulness, and their need for forgiveness, and the, and the Lord's means and, uh, for atoning for their sin. It's nearly now one year since the Exodus. And now God has given Moses the instruction of the establishment and the building of the tabernacle. And he not only lays it out for them, but God provides skilled workers, gifted workers who construct this tabernacle. And the making of the tabernacle is complete in chapter number 40. And this is where God will meet with his people and his presence will be with them. And here in the end of this chapter, the glory of the Lord comes down. This glory of the Lord, this cloud by day and fire by night that had led them and protected them. It is the same glory that covers the mountain that God spoke to them through like a, a thundercloud. And he called up Moses to meet with him and gave him the law. And he reveals himself to them. He's now meeting with them and will meet with this fledgling nation through this tabernacle. And it's a picture of how God has provided salvation for us through Jesus Christ, his son. And so I want us to look at it together today. And so notice with me how this tabernacle becomes a type and a symbol for us and a shadow, a foreshadowing of what God would do for us in Christ. And notice in chapter number 40, beginning with verse number 1. The Lord spoke, if you have your copy of God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses. You're to set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the month. And put the ark of the testimony there. And screen off the ark with the curtain. So I want to talk about this temple. First of all, it's called a tabernacle or a tent or a tent of meeting. It's a temporary shelter. Listen, it's a temporary shelter. It's a precursor to the temple, which is a more permanent structure that comes hundreds of years later. But it's meant to be a temporary shelter, a dwelling place. It's meant to be set up and then torn back down and then put on carts and to be moved. It is, it is to, to accompany them on their journey as they're making their way to the promised land. They're going to the land of promise. Now, this tabernacle, this tent, it's made of cloth and skins and ropes and embroidered materials. And inside of the tent and in the courtyard of the tent are furnishings. And we're going to talk about those today. The first of the furnishings is called the Ark of Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant. And this Ark of the Covenant is a box. It is covered in gold. It is the most holy piece of furniture in all of the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, in all of the temple. And I mean, tabernacle, all right? And so I want us to look at it. If you look at it, it's hammered out gold. It is, this is an idea of what it might look like. And these are cherubim. And you see the cherubim are facing each other. But their, their wings are fully extended, nearly touching each other. And this is the, the, it is the most holy piece of furniture. 
Now, inside the box, this is a lid here. And inside of the box is what? Inside of the box uh, is the, the, the stone tablets. That is the word of God, the law of God, written by the very finger of God himself. And also inside of here is the budding rod of Aaron and a jar that contains some of the manna, the provision of the bread, the, the, the miraculous bread that God gave the children of Israel. Now on this is called the lid. And this lid is, is, is the most holy place. And these two cherubim, their faces are looking downward at this place right here. And that is called the mercy seat. And in this, at this mercy seat, it's a place of covering. It's called the place of atonement. And it's there that propitiation are made, is made for sin. Jesus, Jesus is the Word of God. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. The Word of God, Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture. There is a screen then between inside of this tabernacle, inside of this tent, then there's a screen that pardoned, petitions off the rest of the tent. And that place is called the most holy place. Secondly, there's a table. Notice in chapter number, verse number four, it says, bring the table in and lay out its arrangement and also bring the lampstand and set up its lamps. This table is made out of acacia wood. It is 36 inches long and then it is 18 inches wide and it's 27 inches tall. On it is a framed uh, edge on the, on, uh, that frames the edge and on it is the showbread. There are 12 loaves of bread that's on this table. And it is stacked in 12 loaves, reminding them that the, these are the 12 tribes of Israel. New fresh bread is brought in every Sabbath day. And it is there in the presence of God, representing that God's 12 tribes are in his holy presence that God is sustaining him, that God is taking care of them, and God has chosen him, them, as his people. But it is also a picture of Christ because Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. I'm the source of life, and he who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. John 6.33 says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. There is also a lampstand, a menorah, and we have a picture of that as well. And so the menorah is, is uh, this golden lampstand, and these are almond buds 
and then these little cups. And in the cups, these seven cups would be filled with olive oil. And then they would have a wick that would hang out the side of the cup. And they would light the wicks and the olive oil would burn. And it would put light within the, within the a tabernacle across from the table of showbread. And the light was a representation that God provides his light and his guidance for the children of Israel. And Jesus himself said, this is, by the way, it's pointing to Christ. Everything is. It's pointing to Christ. And Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And then there's the golden altar. Now, the golden altar is much different. In chapter 40, in verse number 5, place the gold altar for incense in front of the Ark of the Testimony. There is a screen there behind the Holy of Holies, and there inside uh, is this smaller altar. It's square, 18 by 18 inches, and a small little fire, and there's there's incense that is prepared and it is sprinkled on the fire and when it does a sweet smelling aroma ascends into heaven and it is representative it's it's covered again in gold and these are small horns that are on this altar and it's it's representative of lifting up the prayers unto God on this altar and so is the, the prayers, and Jesus is our high priest. Jay just read about this in John chapter 17, Christ making intercession for us. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He prays for us in that high priestly prayers. In Hebrews, it tells us he groaned and cried out to God, and, and he, in Romans 8, we know he still makes intercession for us. What an awesome God that we have. Not only that, then there's a screen. And this screen opens up now into the courtyard. We're, we're working from the interior to the exterior in this description in chapter 40. And as we come to the exterior, we find the brazen altar. He says, position the altar of burnt offering in front of the entrance of the tabernacle, the tent of the meeting. And so this is a large firebox outside in the courtyards. When you come into the court, you can't help but miss it. And all of these tools and the execution of all of the animals out at the entrance of the tent of the meeting and, and the laying on the hands and the, the, the killing of the animals without spot or blemish and multiple sacrifices daily and they are laid those capture the blood and it sprinkles on the horns of the altar and there that creature is is roasted on the fire and there's all kinds of offerings there's burnt offerings and sin offerings and guilt offerings and fellowship offerings and they're uh, they're, they're 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 to be creatures without spot or blemish and it's teaching us truth what is the truth that it's teaching us that because of our sins and because of our failures, there has to be death of an innocent for the guilty. And the innocent dies for the guilty. And these innocent creatures are dying. Why are they dying? And their blood is being spilt because of our sin, because the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins should die. 
But God loves us and provides provision for us so that we might have fellowship with him. And it's teaching us this truth. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And then there is the bronze laver. The bronze laver is like a wash basin. So between this large firebox and the tent curtain is this wash basin. It's made out of the mirrors of the women who bring it. And it's polished uh, bronze. And so that you can see the image. So highly polished that you could see your image in it. And as the priest is ministering, he sees his own sinfulness and the own dirt that is on him. And how he needs to be reminded that I can't do this ministry without purity and confession of my own sin. And he washes himself the Bible says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. The truth of the matter is if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's perpetual ongoing confession and cleansing among the priesthood. Second thing that we notice in this passage in chapter number 40 is the anointing oil. Not only the tent and the furnishings, but the anointing oil. And look with me to chapter 40, verse number 9. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it along with all of its furnishings so that it will be holy. Notice the emphasis on being holy. Anoint the altar of burnt offering and its utensils. Consecrate the altar that it will be especially holy. Anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. So it's this anointing oil. The anointing oil is made up of a, a mixture of, of olive oil and myrrh and cinnamon and cane and oil, and it's a sweet-smelling aroma. What did it smell like? In my mind, it's like when I go to the mall and there's a Cinnabon place in the mall. <laughs> it's sweet and cinnamon, and it just lures me to it. Mouth-watering. In it's... And, and all of the furnishings are covered in this symbolic oil. What does this oil mean? It means it's a picture of God's favor, God's grace. It's, it's symbolizing that they are set apart, set aside. They are made holy unto the Lord. They're not ordinary. They're not common. They're not profane. But they're special. And the oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit's presence upon his people. The anointed one. And not only was it objects and furnishings that are anointed, but the priests are to be anointed, set apart, and holy. In the Old Testament, kings were anointed. In the Old Testament, priests were anointed. As a matter of fact, the coming of the Messiah is, he is called Messiah, which means the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. 
And then there's the priesthood. In chapter 40, verse number 12, then bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, wash them with water, they need to be cleansed, and then they need to be clothed. Notice, clothe Aaron with holy garments, anoint him, so now he needs to be consecrated, and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. Cleanse him, clothe him, consecrate him, anoint him with this holy oil, and wear the garments that God had prescribed and the skilled fabric workers had made. I want us to take just a moment. Jay beautifully talked about this last week, but just to recap, let's look at a picture of the priest here on the wall for a moment. Here is a high priest wearing his robe. At the bottom of this robe, you can't see it, but there will be bells and pomegranates sewn to the bottom that you could hear him as he's doing his ministry. And the, not only the undergarment robe, but the, the ephod and, and then the, the tunic and the ephod. And, and you see here on the shoulders, I think, Jay, we talked about this last week, on the shoulders, onyx stones are here, and the 12 tribes are listed, six on this side, six on this side. And then this is a folded over pouch, a breastplate, beautifully and beautiful and ornate, and it has different colored stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And within the pocket is the Urim and, and the Thummim, and they are to uh, the, the, what he uses to cast lots and discern the will of God, a sash around his bay, about his waist, and on his head a turban, and then a diadem on the turban that is gold-plated that says, Holy unto the Lord. And the priest, as he comes in ministering before God and bringing his prayers before God and enters into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, it says, holy unto God, separated unto God, anointed by God. And he's bearing the children of Israel on his shoulders and on his heart, bringing them before Almighty God. And Jesus is our high priest. He is unlike any other. He is anointed by God and he's holy to the Lord and he bears us on his shoulders and on his heart. And then next in this passage of Scripture, notice the glory of the Lord, the text that we read earlier. The cloud, verse number 34, covered the tent of the meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The cow, the shining glory of God, this shining fire-filled cloud. It is the same glory whenever Moses, many years before, was out in the wilderness watching over his father-in-law's sheep, and he comes to this mountain and he sees a bush. And the bush is on fire, but it is not consumed. And as he comes closer to it, a voice speaks out of the glory of that fire-filled bush. This is holy ground. Take off your shoes. And God speaks and calls Moses 
in the presence of his glory. It is the same kind of glory that the children of Israel saw in the, in the sky as God led them by a pillar of cloud and a fire, as God parted the ways of the Red Sea and they walked over on dry ground, as God destroyed the Egyptian army before their very eyes and God protects them with his presence before and behind. God's glory is with them, and it's the glory that descended on the mountain. And in a firestorm, like a thundercloud, God speaks from the mountain and calls Moses up to himself and gives him the law of God. It was the glory of God. The weight the weightiness, the kabod, the Greek word is doxa, is the glory of God. And it fills the temple, the tabernacle. The tabernacle is so filled with the presence of God, Moses can't enter because of the presence of God. It's too holy. And whenever the cloud would move and rise up, then the Levites would come and take down the tent and put it on the carts. And as the cloud would move, the children of Israel moved. The willful leading of his people. And when the cloud stopped, the Levites unpacked and set up the tent of meeting again and all of the furnishings and anointed them made them right and pure and set up their worship and the glory of God would descend over the tabernacle in particular the white hot scent of his presence in the holy of holies and the mercy seat wow what an awesome thought God meeting with his people. Hmm. Joseph was afraid to take Mary to be his wife. She was expecting a child, but God met with him in a dream. And he said, don't you be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And you will name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And this will fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a child, and you will name him. He will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Woo! Isn't that awesome? It's the glory of the Lord. Amen. How is this fulfilled? What does this point to? What is the fulfillment for all of us? Oh, when you think of the priesthood and the sacrifices, you can't help but see Jesus in them. 
In the 16th chapter of Leviticus, which we'll be reading this week, in verse number 1 it says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of Aaron's sons when they approached the presence of the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he may not come whenever he wants to the holy place behind the curtain in front of the mercy seat on the ark or else he'll die because I appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Once a day, once a year, by one man, the high priest may enter behind that curtain before that mercy seat and bring an offering. And notice the offering he's to bring in chapter 16, verse 6. Aaron will present the bull for his sin offering and make atonement for himself and his household. The first atoning offering is for his own sin, Aaron's and the priest's sin, the high priest's sin, and his family's sin. And he's to bring a bull, but then also there should be two goats. In verse number 7, he'll take two goats and place them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. And cast lots for the two. And one lot for the Lord and the other for the uninhabited place. And for the lot that's for the Lord, they will take that precious animal without spot nor blemish. Innocent victim that had never done anything wrong. And that innocent one would be slaughtered, his blood captured. And the gurgling, pulsating blood spewing from his neck was be captured in a basin and put on the horns of the altar and carried by a priest into the very presence of God and sprinkled there at the mercy seat where there's a covering and a propitiation for sin. And the other animal, then a man who's fit is taken that animal and they confess all of the sins of all the people over the animal and it's carried away, 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 far, far away from the camp. No longer visible is the camp out in the middle of nowhere and that creature is left to be alone and die. And it's a picture that the sins are carried away, far away, cast into the sea, and they are removed from Israel. What's that a picture of? You know, it's our King Jesus who laid down his life, the lamb that would take away the sin of the world, that died on Calvary's cross an atoning death for our sin, and a holy God was satisfied. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3 and 4 reminds us the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Why? Because they are animals. And it, the sin is committed by us 
as human beings, as God's children, we have committed sin, and that sin's judgment means death. But the only one who can righteously die and atone for our sins is one who has never sinned, but all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there's none righteous, no, not one. But God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our part. And Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross. He is the perfect one. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 3, it says, But the sacrifices in it, there's a reminder of sins year after year. And it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It, every year it's repeated because it's not satisfied fully. It's foreshadowing. It's pointing to one who would be the one. So in Hebrews chapter 10, in verse number 10, by this will we've been sanctified for the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sin. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He's waited until his enemies be made a footstool. For by one offering, he's perfected forever those who are sanctified. Jesus, Jesus is the one who pays for all of our sins perfectly. So, chapter number 10, verse number 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary, how? By the blood of Jesus. He inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain. What is the curtain? That is through his flesh. And we have a great high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with hearts in full assurance of faith. And our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed in pure water. Listen, there's only one who satisfies. There's only one that opens up access to the Holy of Holies. There's only one who makes propitiation for our sin. And that's Jesus Christ. He is not only our priest. He is our atoning sacrifice. When Christ was dying on the cross, he cried out with a loud voice and he said, It is finished! Finished! With a loud voice, he yielded up his spirit. And Matthew 27 says, And the veil in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. And God opened a way for us. Woo! Isn't that awesome? What a wonderful God we have. What of his glory? What of his glory? The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. And listen, listen, watch it, don't miss it. And tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John said, when we watched Jesus, we saw the glory of God. When we listened to Jesus, we heard God speaking. When we saw him do miracles, we saw the glory of God. And when we saw him loving, we saw the glory of God. And when we heard him praying, we could hear the voice of God. And when we saw him dying, we were seeing the glory of God. And when we saw him risen from the dead, it was the glory of God. Wow. What of his glory? Moses wanted to see the glory of God. God, show me. But God said, you can't see all of my glory face to face. So in that mountain, he puts Moses where? In the crack, in a cleft that's in the rock. He covers him there, and he passes by. And Moses sees something of God, but not face to face. God said, you can't handle it, Moses. If I showed it all to you, it'd kill you. But Moses was so transformed by his glory that his own face would come alive and transformed. And Moses would come down and the people said, it's too much! Because the glory was reflected in the face of Moses. Wow. But there was a day that he did see him face to face. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus meets with the disciples, Peter and James and John. And on that mountaintop, the glory of Christ is changed and transformed into his glory. And Moses and Elijah see him. And Peter goes, ha, shazam, what do we do? <laughs> Let's build three tabernacles. God speaks. This is my son. You listen to him. It's the glory of God. Are you with me? The glory of the Lord. Colossians says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. God making his glory known to us. And we worship in the Spirit. We worship God. And this is Paul's whole argument. In chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, he says, when we're worshiping God who's the Spirit, he says, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory unto glory. We worship God in the Spirit, and He is changing us. But listen, there'll be a day in the physical realm that He is coming again. And when He does, we will be changed. Woo! First John chapter 2. In verse number 28, And so now, little children, remain, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence, not be ashamed. If you know that he's righteous, you know this well. Everyone who does what's right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has for us. See, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And we are. That's who we are. 
And the reason the world does not know us is it did not know him. But dear friends, watch. We are God's children. When? Now. And what we will be has not been revealed. But now watch, 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 watch. But we know when he appears, we will be like him. And we will see him as he is. Not through a glass dimly, but face to face. <laughs> How glorious. This is what God has destined for you. Notice how it comes full circle. Notice how the dots connect from Exodus to Revelation. Look with me. We read it earlier. To the 21st chapter of Revelation. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for a husband, and a loud voice from the throne. Now watch, watch, don't miss it. Look, God's tabernacling, God's dwelling is with mankind. And he will live with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. And will be with, and will be their God. <laughs> the tabernacle in the Old Testament becomes a tabernacle of reality when God dwells with man. And then every tear is wiped from your eyes. And there's no more sin, no more death, no more sorrow. And those things are dead. And it's life. The glory of the Lord. Father in heaven, thank you for these great truths. Lord, I pray that today... as we reflect on your great love, that with golden chains of grace, you would draw us to yourself and that we would surrender to Jesus. And we would love you and that you would change us. If there's one person here today and these promises that don't, doesn't know Christ. These promises are only for those who know Christ. And I pray that if there's somebody here who's never given their life to Christ, never been saved, never put their faith in Christ, that today they would turn from sin and turn to Jesus. <coughs> Have your way in our lives right now, Father. You said in your word, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. We're calling on you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.